Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey folks, welcome back to OMD Daily. This is the June 5th, 2020 episode. Um, so this is the Friday episode and I am i haven't made it official, but given how I tend to kind of wind down on Fridays and how most of my day gets filled with catching up with friends over Zoom now, most of my day is actually focused on just relaxing and listening to a ton of podcasts so maybe it's going to be like a podcast compilation episode in the future i don't know i haven't kind of set it out yet i'm still figuring out how to structure my days and weeks optimally um i'm still working out the kind of four week uh, monthly sprint project that i kind of started as well uh, a few months ago yeah it's just as much as I love building systems and getting obsessed about it, there's also that period of you have to kind of test it enough and I get too obsessed with building the system instead of actually doing anything about it. So working out the kinks, but I won't bore you any further. So the key learnings today, I figured I'd share two particular podcast episodes that I thought were so impactful that I decided to take a ton of notes on. Um, they're both from Patrick O'Shaughnessy's Invest Like the Best podcast, which uh, in my opinion, is one of my favorite finance slash investing related podcasts to listen to. And the two episodes I'm going to talk about, uh, one's a more recent one and one's kind of, I think, a year or two uh, ago in the past. Well, so the first one is Ben Thompson's interview. Uh, if you don't know Ben Thompson, he is the founder of Stratechery and Stratechery is kind of considered this um, tech so it's a mix of strategy and technology strategy and technology i think that's why it's stratechery and there might be one more i forget i'm sorry ben if you're listening but it's practically a solo run uh blog that ben writes i think four articles every week on and it's just, you have to be a subscriber i think you can you get one article for free every week but Ben's Stratechery is a kind of read by all the top tech execs in the world. Like I think uh, Elon Musk reads it. I think maybe like Mark Zuckerberg reads it. Like a lot of top famous people that you know have all read Stratechery. And Ben's insights are definitely very fascinating. And I think I've mentioned a bunch of Ben's past podcast interviews in my previous newsletter this week I learned. But so today's interview was really focused on things I was really fascinated in. Um, mainly the difference between aggregators and platforms. And I have kind of more detailed notes in the show or detailed, detailed episode notes in my own show notes at omdventures.com slash omddaily. Check it out there if I don't cover everything. So the key things I took away were kind of the distinctions of what an aggregator is and what a platform is. Because I think, yeah, like the term platform is this convoluted term now where everybody talks about platforms for tech companies and everyone talks about network effects and 
how every company has them nowadays, apparently, because that's one of the big moats that you have for a business. But Ben kind of breaks it down into the difference of what an what whether a company is an aggregator or a platform, and it's built upon I think the essays he wrote um, where he dissects whether like Google is a platform or aggregator, whether Facebook is a platform or aggregator, and the differences are that, for example. So Facebook is an aggregator, and Amazon is considered an aggregator. Practically, Ben says there's kind of these three categories uh, or three traits of an aggregator. One is that they have zero marginal cost. Two is that um, they lower customer acquisition costs at its scale, so the marginal user continuously improves the value of the product over time. And the third is that the company has a direct relationship with its customers, whereas a platform is something that it's mainly kind of dominated by just having these APIs that people can use. And so a platform maybe considers like the old models like Microsoft where they had this whole platform that other kind of developers can build things off of. Um, I think Shopify would be a platform because unlike Amazon, like Shopify has this has built this technology base where various entrepreneurs can build a storefront off of, but it's not a Shopify storefront. They're just providing this service and platform for people to constantly build things off of. And if I think about other platforms, I think by that definition, WordPress owned by Automatic would be a platform because you have all these developers that can build various plugins to create, uh, to help creators build websites, etc. Whereas a company like Facebook or Amazon, they've built their own product and everyone has to come to their product and use it. It's not like... Um, so like compared to Shopify, when you go to Amazon and you sell something on Amazon, it's all Amazon products, really. Like Because when I get it, it's going to be in an Amazon box. And Amazon kind of controls the full vertical. Whereas if you created a store on Shopify, the branding is still you. And when the customer sees it, it's going to be about your company. And so that kind of leads to where the kind of that... Um, the value creation and things happen um, for a platform. It's really important to have very kind of highly differentiated uh, products on the platform. Um, and that's kind of how the various kind of suppliers win. Like the more unique suppliers are, that are on the platform, the better. Whereas for an aggregator, you can kind of think of it as the classic kind of user generated content companies like Facebook and YouTube, where and even like Google with all the websites on Google that are on like the search platform where it seems that um, all the people that come on there, the suppliers are mainly commodities. And it's more so about the fact that the aggregators has all these very, this giant volume and they control the demand. Um, and by doing that, they actually can, it's, it's the platform, the, oh, see, even I'm, I'm calling it a platform, but the product itself is kind of differentiated by its ease of use and ease of use and its ability to connect with users so that it can just amass this giant kind of user base and it seems like that's the kind of moat for an aggregator which i'm not doing a great job at explaining but that's how i understood it um so that's why i think it's great to go and listen to the actual interview because ben explains it better but those are the key things i learned um and i love how the interview like he talks about very specific, uh, specific examples. So you can look at Spotify, Facebook, and Amazon kind of being these aggregators. And Google kind of plays 
a mix because they do kind of they do have a platform like Android is a platform, but then YouTube is an aggregator. So there's definitely Google has I think various products that play different kinds of roles, but it gets lumped in as just just a easy definition of a platform. But the way the companies work are definitely slightly different. I think um, another thing that was interesting to learn about was on how traditional businesses getting an getting additional customers is actually harder. So, you know, when you first start a company and you have initial customers, those are kind of your early adopters, but at the same time, there are people that trust you and they, you know, if they cost X and some people believe that every marginal new customer you get will be cheaper. But the reality is that for most businesses, to get like the thousands customer or the ten thousands customer customer, there's more of like a diminishing uh, return curve. So it actually gets harder and harder to acquire more customers. Whereas companies that tend to be aggregators, it becomes easier. And each marginal customer that gets added actually adds more values to the plat to the uh, product itself. Although there also seems to be kind of like a tip off point where, like if yeah, 10,000 customers or users on Facebook, it gets more valuable when it has 100,000, but there might be like a tip-off point where maybe if you have a million, it really isn't that much more valuable. Like I'm just throwing out numbers and examples, but there seems to be that kind of curvature as well when you consider the value of having additional users where there definitely is a diminishing thing there, but the cost itself isn't a diminishing return where it just gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to acquire more of these users, um, which I think is something unique and important to think about when you think about the growth trajectory of a company as well. Because not everyone is an aggregator. Many companies might sell, sell themselves as aggregators, but when you do the dive into how the business is formed, how it actually interacts with customers, there can be kind of like a difference. And I think another thing I pulled away was just personally on... Um, like building OMD Ventures and everything, it's because I love media and I'm just very fascinated by media itself. Uh, I love doing these podcasts. Uh, like I experimented with vlogging. I love writing. And so what Ben has created with Strategically is somewhat of an inspiration to me personally because he's built he's built this single person company and he lives in I think Taiwan now. Like he's lived in Singapore and Taiwan I think. Um running this business and the kind of so the conversation kind of talks briefly about the media world as well where Ben talks about how in the kind of value chain spectrum he believes that the two company the two types of companies that will succeed are on one end the companies that control demand that control um, access to the customer your classic aggregators like Spotify Facebook YouTube those kind of customers and on one end the independent creators who can create very different differentiated and very kind of niche kind of products and he believes that the power of the people in the middle the traditional kind of publishing uh, publishing houses um, that maybe used to do distribution work before uh, are kind of and kind of the brokers as well like the middlemen are just slowly fading away um, and that definitely got me thinking more about yeah like 
more just on the business front and what I should do on building out home adventures and how to think about building more of a differentiated uh, platform for my own future. But yeah, overall, this was a super fascinating interview. I listened to it, I want to say about two times fully, and then I kept on going back to rewind and rewind and rewind because uh, it just took me time to understand things and to truly kind of grasp the concepts that Ben was talking about. I'll prob- But I downloaded it on Spotify, so I'll probably still go back and listen to it uh, in the near future as well. And the second episode I want to talk about uh, or the second podcast episode I want to talk about is Bill Gurley's uh, interview. I think this was his first interview with Patrick O'Shaughnessy on the Invest Like the Best podcast. And so if you don't know Bill Gurley, he is a partner at Benchmark Capital, which kind of is one of the top uh, VC firms that I think I, everyone in the investing industry knows about. Like if you think about the top, you know, uh, like investors out there in the public markets people know of stan Druckenmiller, miller warren buffett jim simons and you know the kind of there's a group of people there at cnvc for venture capital investing when you think about the funds um there's benchmark there's kk um kleiner kleiner perkins yeah, kleiner perkins um i'd say maybe even excel is part of that sequoia and yeah, Bill, Bill Gurley is definitely a very highly respected uh, investor. And his focus, although he's a generalist, um, the conversation focuses on UGC businesses, which are user-generated content companies. I actually had to look this up because I had no idea what he was talking about. So I either missed it during the interview or uh, I'm just really behind on my tech uh, acronyms. But I think the key things um, I learned about this conversation were two particular points one called liquidity quality and the second was just on marketplace businesses and so on the first part liquidity quality um, I didn't really understand what he was talking about and when he explained it it was I first thought it was like on financial liquidity on whether the company had a lot of cash but Bill Gurley is talking about kind of the depth of I guess I could call it fans but kind of the user base like the actual value of the product inside its current niche market and how to create very big kind of marketplace companies and these kind of UGC companies, a lot of the founders have to focus on building this liquidity quality. And he cites two particular examples that I found very fascinating. One was on uh, the Glassdoor founder, Rich Barton. And I think Rich Barton currently runs Zillow, the real estate um tech company but when he first founded Glassdoor apparently uh, what Rich and his kind of team would do is they'd go to coffee shops and they would target like a coffee shop like all these Cisco uh, employees would work out of and then they would personally interview them and then collect all the data that way and so they would do all these very unscalable things and uh, so Gurley talks about how for entrepreneurs 90% of the time it's going to be focused on doing all the unscalable things possible to eventually reach the point of scale but the the so the kind of flaw or kind of error in modern entrepreneurs who kind of understand this marketplace model and this UGC model is that they all focus on doing the scalable things like they won't do things if it's not scalable but the whole point to get to that point you have to do a ton of unscalable things that business school just never seems to talk about and so another example he uses, which I didn't know, was about Yelp and how 
the founder went to nightclubs with T-shirts for reviewers and how he would like per- personally visit all these nightclubs and how Yelp actually started out by focusing on the nightclub industry in San Francisco. And so I thought that was also unique too, where they had this particular niche and it wasn't that they're going after restaurants from the get-go. So I thought that was pretty interesting as well. Um, but yeah, like the big thing there was on the value of under trying to build depth in your customer base, which kind of, I think it alludes to the PRTL version of zero to one, where you have, you really want to dominate a niche and to dominate a niche, you have to do all the unscalable things to make a small segment of people just fall in love with you and just love you so much that no matter where you go to expand later on, the love from that initial pool of small uh, of the small market you've built is so strong that you can expand further on later on. But the f- error is in companies that try to expand way too quickly without actually having depth inside that niche market. So yeah, that was one particular topic I found uh, interesting. It wasn't new, but it was also really cool to hear Bill talk about it and actually talk about companies that uh, he's invested in or kind of he knows about that he that have these kinds of stories to kind of give you more context. The second topic was on um, how market marketplace businesses are formed and why they fail. And so this was a pretty cool, I think, mental model where marketplace businesses need a behavior of promiscuity and not monogamy. And that kind of got me thinking more because I didn't. This, it's a model that I never considered. And it made sense though, because when you think of a marketplace, the only way the marketplace thrives is if customers continuously come back, right? It's like a bazaar or, you know, a bazaar, like the traditional big markets with all the food stands, like people have to constantly come back and they come back because they usually have to buy food and you have to eat all the time. So you just keep on coming back to the market. And, but if, you find something in the market that you only need once of in your entire lifetime or for a very long time, then you probably won't come back. So like if I, and so the kind of example that uh, Bill uses is some uh, things you find in a marketplace, like a barber or babysitter, they're more monogamous because when you have a really good barber, you'll probably go back to the barber all the time. And that's pretty, I think that's pretty true. Like my mom has a hairstylist and she's been going to the hairstylist for, I want to say something like 15 years. If you had a babysitter you trust and you found on a site, you'd probably go with that one babysitter for a very long time. If you had a dentist, you'd probably just go back to the dentist for a very long time. You probably wouldn't be switching. So then the value of the marketplace is kind of like a one and done thing after all these relationships are formed. So then it makes you wonder how can it expand? So then the marketplace will generally succeed if they focus on um, products that have promiscuity, where you will continue to check out a lot of different things. And so one thing is like restaurants. And so Bill uses, I think, OpenTable as a example of that. Although I think it's debatable whether OpenTable is successful or not. Um, like I think booking, I think booking.com, it's a company that owns OpenTable and they've kind of noted it's not been a successful acquisition for them. Although TripAdvisor owns The Fork, uh, La Forchette, but they that business seems to be going relatively well. So I think the the idea is still sound, whether the company executes is a different question. But 
yeah, so you generally want to have a business that focuses on this good that people want to constantly get new ones of, I guess, Um, which made me think about um, Match Group and, you know, Match Group owns Tinder and Hinge because it made me wonder, hmm, is sex considered something that's promiscuous or monogamous? Um, like I, so for context, I've never used a dating app before, so it's something that I'm not very familiar with, but I'm very curious about how my friends utilize it because this kind of came out, uh, I'd say kind of after my time. And so I see different kinds of behaviors. There's people that seem to use it to find a long-term relationship, but I'd say the majority use it as a way to be kind of, you know, promiscuous to try meeting a lot of different people so in that aspect this could that's a very powerful marketplace that constantly links people because it's all about human connection and i personally have a view that monogamy is not a very natural thing for humans anyways i think biologically it's not uh it's not natural it's more of a societally imposed rule um but that i digress that's kind of going on a tangent but yeah, I think that's a very interesting model to consider in the future when I look at a business and ask myself, what is it? What is the good that's being traded on this marketplace? And is it a promiscuous good or is it a monogamous good? So that was a pretty cool mental model. And apparently when um, marketplace businesses form, they're built on um, a very highly fragmented marketplace where you don't have... I guess, you know, dominant consolidated players, which makes sense. That's where there's this opportunity for a market to form. But another side is that on the supplier side, um, the market is made up of a lot of new and recent small, medium businesses. So it's highly fragmented because they're small, medium businesses. But another key factor is that they have to be more new and recent where it seems like the industry itself is kind of forming or the barrier to exit and the barrier to entry are so low that you are continuously having turnover. So I think that immediately makes you think of restaurants once again, because restaurants are a business where you continuously have new new restaurants constantly pop up because the barrier to entry is so low because really you can just get a loan and rent out a storefront. And also the barrier to exit is also pretty low as well because you look at COVID, most, a lot of restaurants are just kind of closing down because, yeah, you just cancel the lease um, and that's kind of it. It's not like, you know, running an oil company where I think the barriers to exit are much higher because the capital equipment are is just much more intense. It's just, and the dollar values are just much bigger. So comparatively, these would be lower. So I think those the companies that target those kinds of marketplaces can do relatively well. And on the ones that fail, um, I think on top of the fact that it's probably a a monogamous (laughs) product, so it probably won't work. It's also the ones where kind of Gurley talks about as as a way to kind of detect whether it would be the one that fails. It's the one where it's formed. It looks like it's in a pretty big size, but ones that continually need to, spend money on marketing to acquire customers. So even though your market place is used by millions of people, it's not strong enough as a uh, as a platform for people to continuously come and trade goods and services. And so you're continuously needing to spend dollar amounts to acquire customers. So that indicates that there is no uh, organic growth and there 
this kind of flywheel effect of a marketplace cannot form. And my and so Gurley didn't talk about this, but my immediate thought was on the difference between Trip TripAdvisor and Booking.com because Booking.com the way it works is they practically pay Google a ton of money to just get you know all the front placements and have everyone get redirected to either Booking.com or Kayak or which one, whatever OTA site, the online travel agency site that Booking.com owns, because Booking.com owns more than just Booking.com. They own Kayak and they own a couple other smaller ones as well. So that that's generally how they bring in a lot of their customers. So in essence, they just have this really great conversion uh, ratio, but they still pay Google a ton of ad dollars. And so I guess during this COVID time, they just scale down the amount of money they pay Google and that can kind of work in tandem with the decrease in revenue as well. But it makes me wonder whether they actually have a good marketplace because they continue to have to acquire customers by paying Google a ton of money. Whereas conversely, TripAdvisor ha- hasn't had to really rely as much on marketing dollars as Booking.com because they were able to generate a lot of organic uh, traffic from Google directly onwards, but with Google's changing SEO rules that really impacted the company. However, from from that, even just that data alone, I feel that TripAdvisor is a business where it actually focuses on controlling demand. And this kind of ties in with uh, what Ben Thompson talked about, where if I look at the two companies in the travel industry, TripAdvisor controls its demand. Like they are the kind of quote unquote, like social media information site for all kinds of trip related things and it funnels them into um, booking sites, whereas booking.com controls suppliers. So they have all the hotels and everyone in their network, and then they buy demand from an aggregator, AKA Google. So if I think about a marketplace that might be more valuable, I would say TripAdvisor would be more valuable. And it's a more, and it's also, once again, a promiscuous product. People want to travel to new places continuously. It's like checking off a list. That's very important for human behavior. Um, so yeah, those are the thoughts that I had. And if you're curious about TripAdvisor, I I wrote a uh, I wrote an article about it, um, like an investment research report on it. I think a month or two ago, and I found it to be pretty interesting because it seems to be this neglected company compared to Booking.com, but I felt it had more promise than Booking. But that's just my opinion. But anyhow, this. These were kind of the two key learnings I wanted to share, and I hope this was insightful. Hope you learned something, and I really hope that it kind of intrigued you enough so that you actually go and listen to the full episode so that you can actually get some better learnings instead of uh, the kind of high-level ones that I provide. So thanks for listening, and take care.